Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. BMI actually has a pretty deep history, and it actually started with a Belgium statistician who had nothing to do with health and actually didn't care about health whatsoever. Dr. Kara Akabach, a human biologist and assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, joins the podcast for the second of this two-part edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Kara Akabach. Dr. Akabach is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the director of the Human Energetics Laboratory. She is also a concurrent faculty member of the Department of Gender Studies. Dr. Akabach is also a 2022 recipient of the Human Biology Association's Michael A. Little Early Career Award. Let's rejoin the conversation I had with Dr. Akabach. You mentioned something here that I also wanted to sort of bring around to not only just your male and female athletes and comparisons, but the commentary you did on BMI. Now, as a clinician and as also someone who's worked with a variety of athletes, when I got my master's in public health, I was a TA in an athletic health enhancement program at UMass Amherst. First of all, as an aside, I see you work with hockey players. They are both male and female hockey players are insane aerobic and and anaerobic strength athletes. I've always been impressed with them. But I want to go back to BMI because we were doing a BMI exercise with some of these athletes and their BMIs were way over 30. And you're like, this person doesn't have 3% body fat. So can you briefly touch in? I guess it's Nick Clue, Dr. Nick Clue. You and Dr. Nick Liu talked about the current concept of BMI and, and the problems with it. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? So many problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the BMI actually has a pretty deep history, and it actually started with a Belgium statistician who had nothing to do with health and actually didn't care about health whatsoever. And um, uh, his name was Adolphe uh, Kitelet, which my, my postdoc, Dr. Alexander Niclou, had to tell me how to pronounce properly, but she speaks like five languages. Um, but uh, Kitelet, uh, he was just interested in, in the means of populations. He was interested in how different variables were distributed out of mere curiosity more than anything else. And one of the ones that he was interested in is trying to, you know, look at this relationship between height and weight. And he found that the body mass over height squared is is the the best way to to come up with this distribution. He only worked with like white guys who were military folks. This is in the the mid 1800s, by the way, everybody. Sorry, mid 1800s. Males in the military between the ages of like 18 and 30. So Hardly representative of basically any other population in the world. And again, he was just looking at these distributions of means, and he was even explicit in saying this should not be used as an indicator of health. So explicit. Uh, along the way, Ansel, Ansel Keys came along, uh, you know, physiologist, doctor as well. And he was looking at it as a, as a nice, easy metric to, to assess health. He was trying to find something that doctors could use in the office and take moments to calculate that could give them a baseline idea of what an individual's health could and should be. And he went through all of these different equations and he, he came upon Kitelet's equation uh, and found this one fit best among the populations he worked with, which also were all male. And with the exception of one population, were all white. And the one population was a Bantu population. And it turned out that the, what is the BMI equation now, didn't work for the Bantu population at all, but he still moved forward saying this should be broadly applied and used. NIH has adopted the BMI standards. Insurance companies used to use it to actually come up with what somebody's premium should be, all of these things. And so we have associated this this very faulty metric 
that is literally just height and weight. You do not take into account body composition. So you do not know how much muscle versus fat there is. You do not actually know what somebody's metabolic health is based on BMI. But we have associated all of these different comorbidities with, with BMI, such as heart, de- heart disease, diabetes, obesity, all of that stuff. Um, and it's a, a blanket metric that does, actually, that does not actually work on the individual level for so right. many people. I mean, I, I remember an article now, this is a while back, but they took several professional sports people who you look at and go, these people are you know really fit. And then you're like, oh, they're either obese or they're significantly underweight. And it's like, no, they're, they're a good weight for what they're doing. And I think I remember, and, and help me here, there were other measurements that you thought in that article might be more apropos. And I know that a lot of the folks here, as a clinician, I'm sorry, we always bring it back to like, how does this, how can I make this work for me? So what would be the... Exactly. But I mean, that's the important part. Like, you know, I, I work at the theoretical level on so many things, but you all are working in the trenches with people. You need to be able to apply this stuff. So don't ever apologize for that because it's the hope to change things for the better in practice. So that's great. Um, but there are a couple. So waist to hip ratio is is one that is often used um, as a better idea, especially of central or visceral adiposity, since that seems to be the far more dangerous location for fat than, you know, hips or thighs. Um, having it in and around your organs is a bad, bad thing. Uh, so that's one. But then also measuring body fat. Uh, you can do them in easy ways with skinfold calipers. You can also use bioelectrical impedance, which they have scales now that it takes all of 90 seconds to get a result. Are they the most accurate? No, but they will at least give you a baseline with your individual patients that you can then track that data and have a better idea of what their body actually is than just this basic height and weight. Right. And one data point is no data point, as my biostats professors told me during my Absolutely. training. So, okay. So pardon for the tangential thinking, but when you were talking about those folks in Northern Finland, I was triggered about the thrifty gene theory and the, the Pimas of Arizona and Mexico. And I, I don't know, you know, obviously probably as a physiology uh, student, you've studied that. How does that sort of overlay into what you're looking at with these folks? Is it a matter of temperature? Is it a matter of what their diets and living activities were? So, yeah, there's a couple of things going on in that question that I want to make sure I clarify. Um, so the thrifty genotype uh, relates a little bit more to the population in Samoa that my, my postdoc was working with. Um, and this has been so levels of obesity and overweight are quite high in Samoa. Uh, they're either number one or number six, and they switch off with American Samoa for the most obese nation in, in the world. Um, <clears throat> and there are some real health effects that are going on, metabolic health effects that are going on in Samoa. And some folks have proposed this thrifty genotype hypothesis in which um, that there were extreme, there were periods of extreme famine, basically, where they were undernourished. And so those who survived were the ones who were able to store fat and be able to rely on that fat in times, in lean times, if you will, when they weren't able to get food. Right. My Irish relatives are all like, hey, we're, we're, we're chubby because all, we're the only ones that lived from the famine. Through the potato yeah, famine. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so that, that is one idea of what's been going on there. Uh, but that also, in, in some ways, is a little bit difficult. And, and, and the reason they apply that with lean times is because these were seafaring folks who would go on these exceptionally long overseas journeys and part of the thrifty genotype kind of makes this assumption that they were poor planners as well and didn't like pack enough food or couldn't get fish in the ocean. And that's maybe not the best assumption to make because they obviously successfully populated 
lots of islands in, in the Polynesian region. Uh, and so when we bring this back to what we see, it, it could actually relate to climate. Uh, and so there are these Bergman and Allen rules idea that body shape and size is going to vary and it's going to be in some ways dependent on the climate that you live in. So you'd expect to see larger but shorter bodies in cold climates because that helps you to retain heat. It reduces your body surface area. And then you expect to see long lean bodies in hot climates because that expands your surface area and you can dump heat very easily. So you have the, the Samoan population, which is a tropical population that exhibits a cold climate body type. And that's bizarre in so many ways. And so what my, my postdoc is putting forward, and there's also part of the work that in the commentary that you read, is that perhaps there was selection for this cold climate body type because of cold exposure that they experienced on these long overseas journeys. They could really only rely on clothing and maybe limited shelter because of the ship, they didn't have heaters. They couldn't put a fire on. <laughs> like it was all made of wood. These things, uh, and actually, we, we, uh, myself, and some other colleagues at OSU, or Ohio State University, and the University of Oregon, we just submitted a paper actually estimating what the cost, the metabolic cost of those overseas journeys would be. And uh, this is a, a side note of a, a little of a hint of what's to come. The folks with bitter, bigger bodies fared a whole lot better than the folks with smaller bodies. You look at the animal kingdom for that in, in cold. Exactly. In cold areas, I mean, the polar bear is the biggest bear, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. even... Look at an Arctic hare versus yeah. a desert hare. And like, that's all you really need to see to understand that this does come into yeah. play. And then that brings me, uh, see, I, I am wrapping this all together. <laughs> this brings me to the concept of, of fit and fat phenotype, yeah. uh, which I think is kind of what you're alluding to uh, mm -hmm. with the Samoa folks that although they are in a lovely area weather-wise, um, but they may also fit into that fit and fat phenotype or perhaps not. Uh, I mean, Samoa, they, there are definitely some major health implications going on in Samoa right now. And then that likely has to do with a lot of the changes in diet in recent past and the colonialist history in Samoa and American Samoa as well. Um, although there is some pretty good evidence that the Samoan population was like larger body before there was this incursion of colonial. So they may have, but they might be in a transition at this point because a lot of the traditional diet and activities have kind of fallen away because of colonialism. And so this is where I Exactly. And so this is where I turn to the reindeer herders. Um, and so in Finland, so these folks were big. 75% uh, of the folks I worked with uh, were either overweight or had obesity. They were big. Uh, but from the, the very limited measures we had of their health, which we're going to be expanding this coming February, they're relatively healthy. Their glucose looks good. Their cholesterol looks good. Their HDL cholesterol is brilliant. <laughs> when, you, when you think about an American population, they have excellent HDL cholesterol. And so it became this question of like, why are we seeing, you know, if we look at BMI, it tells us these people are, are obese. And that tells us they should be suffering from A, B, C, and D, different comorbidities because of their obesity. And we're not seeing that. Uh, and so... The fit and fat hypothesis has been around, you know, before me. I did not come up with that. Uh, and it's this idea that you can be obese by BMI standards or even carry extra body fat adiposity, but not actually suffer any ill metabolic health uh, consequences from that. And there was a paper done that estimated that roughly, you know, 8% of folks who fall within the obese category might fall within this fit and fat. Uh, phenotype as well. Uh, and so it's not everybody. So this is not a, a blanket, you know, everyone who's obese is going to be healthy all the time. No, that's not true. And that's not true for skinny people, like people with low BMIs, uh, that you can be fit 
and fat or fat and fit. And so with the reindeer herders, I started wondering, you know, is there anything about their cold climate adaptations that might actually be playing into this, you know, fat and fit hypothesis? And yeah, I think there might be something. It needs testing. So that's why this is a commentary and not a research paper, uh, is that you have higher resting metabolic rates. You get a metabolic bump from brown adipose tissue. You also get fatty acid and glucose disposal because of the brown adipose tissue. You have high levels of physical activity, and um, a lot of the studies looking at the fat and fit hypothesis show that physical activity is a huge mitigating factor um, for comorbidities with obesity, that you can be have obesity and have extra body fat, but if you're physically active, you're healthy, you're metabolically healthy. Uh, and then the reindeer herders, this is changing as well, but a lot of them still rely on a very, not very, but a more traditional diet that uses semi-domesticated reindeer, uh, lots of big fishing uh, tradition goes on in Finland as well. Uh, and so that, that's why the, the HDL is so good uh, among the, the reindeer herders. And so you have kind of this collection of cold climate features that might be feeding into this fat and fit hypothesis. The, and and the, the lovely uh, omega-3 fatty acids that you get from eating all of that salmon and so forth. And I think what you're sort of saying in one regard is, is what many of us who also in clinical practice, you know, we get the, the sort of research that aside from not smoking, physical activity is probably the single greatest thing you can do for your health. I mean, and, and studies, the women's health study, the physician's health study, study after study after study, just sort of say, if you are physically active, even as a kid and a teenager, and then you stopped, the benefits still roll forward. So um, I do like to think that, you know, we in medicine, I'm also trained as an osteopath path that you know physical activity is sort of a panacea in some regards yeah and it's it's also one of these is that i also get clinician pushback against this idea that i'm putting forward because you're as clinicians you see you see sick people like all the time you don't see the healthy people and so it very it becomes very easy to look at someone who is obese and has obesity and be like, well, they're unhealthy because that's what you see because they're coming to you because there's something wrong. Uh, and, and I think it further pushes this idea that individualized medicine is so critical. Uh, if you, if you use BMI and you know, this is in that paper as well, um, people with very normal BMIs in Japan actually have a high incidence of diabetes. And so if you just look at their BMI like, ah, you don't need to be tested for diabetes, you're going to miss something. Uh, but then you also might be coming in with, you know, a certain mindset if you see somebody who has obesity of like, oh, you know, this is going to be wrong. This is going to be wrong. Any, any health issue that they're bringing to me is clearly related to them having obesity. And that's just not the case. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg here in medicine is that individualized medicine, when you say that oftentimes is more in the pathologic sense that, you know, in oncology, we're, we're doing mutation testing in certain cancers because we know that certain treatments will do that. And I think that as always, all of you in, in the scientific world are pulling us behind because one instructor I had is we're applied scientists. We play with it for a while. And we're like, how do we use this? And so the other question I have is applied science. And you mentioned this a little bit, and I want to just touch on it, is that as we move into fall and winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, um, those of us who love winter sports, I, I love to cross-country ski and snowshoe, are getting really excited. But there are others who are going to go and hide in the gym or work out in their basements or so forth. Can you just briefly touch on the benefits of embracing the winter yes. and getting outside? I got to tell you, Tim, just about every year as winter approaches, I get contacted by a media outlet to talk about my work, about physical activity in the cold. Like the, that story has not died and it's like 10 years old. It's, 
Hey, it's a pot boiler. You know, even even Shakespeare had to write a few a few that weren't weren't you know that lasted forever. And it's just like it cracks me up how this thing has still has legs. Uh, so yeah, and this is something I always want to be very very clear on because I know there was this fad in New York for a while for cold gyms saying that if you go and come and work out at our gym where it's like fifty degrees, you're going to burn more calories. The moment you start working out, your body heats up. And so you're not burning extra calories from just being in a cold room. If you want to burn extra calories because it's cold, just sit in a cold room. Then you're going to bump up your metabolic rate and don't move. Uh, but when it comes to winter activities, it turns out that it's the actual environment that is what produces an extra calorie burn because it's a difficult environment to navigate. When you snowshoe, when you cross-country ski and you do any of those things with a load on your back, those are very metabolically demanding activities. Snow shoveling is one of like the most metabolically demanding activities you can do in a short period of time. And so you get a really great workout in the cold, uh, but you also have to be careful about dehydration because you end up sweating more than you realize. Um, and you have to be careful about how dangerous the conditions could be if it's slippery, icy, big storms coming, all those caveats. Uh, but just going and exercising in the cold alone does not mean you're going to burn more calories. But actually interacting and engaging with the in winter environment, you can. Right. All the things that make people uh, complain about winter, putting on heavy boots, slogging through, you know, snow up to your knees and so forth and so on. My which favorite Some thing. of us enjoy <laughs> having married into a family uh, of Quebecois, you know, it's, it's you just get out in cold and slog around. Uh, Dr. Francois Heyman sort of talked about the same thing. He goes, you know, people think just driving around on a skidoo in, in northern Ontario is easy work. And he's like, you know, you're exhausted at the end of the day. Um, that is some core work. I have had to do that. I know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, the other thing is, is that so sort of anecdotally, and I'm sure there's a physiologic reason because of the thalamus and so forth. Once you get done working out in the cold, nothing tastes as good as that meal you have after after you're done. Probably increased calorie intake like your your northern um, reindeer herders. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is it's warm. The food will be warm and that feels good. Uh, and you just burned a ton of calories. Like I'm always, you know, famished after shoveling the driveway. We have basically a ski slope for a driveway. Oh, so steep, you can't use a, a snowblower. So it has to be done by hand. Um, I come in and I want to eat the world. I'm so hungry at that point. So yeah. And I will share you a, a little story that you might find interesting as an anthropologist. Um, my father-in-law um, is from Quebec. And when he was a younger man, he went to the Northern Woods and, and was a lumberjack for a few years. They fed them five times a day. You there was to. a tent open and they had, they, he got four or five meals a day. And he said he like lost weight while he was up there. So yeah, absolutely. interesting stuff. So I, just a few more questions. And I thank you so much for spending time with us. I noticed on your faculty bio that you state you are an avid power lifter. Oh. That, is, that is an interesting sport. How does one get into powerlifting? I'm a former avid power lifter. So we're going to go through the whole story. Um, so what actually got me into it? I'll start with the happy part and then we'll move into the sad part, um, which hopefully will also be a lesson to doctors listening to this because this is a doctor ignoring patient story, oh, unfortunately. No, no. Um, yeah. Um, so I decided to start lifting when I was getting ready to do my dissertation field work in the Rocky Mountains, knowing I would have to hike at altitude with 80 pounds on my back. And I was not in shape for that. Um, and it turned out I really liked the weightlifting part of that preparation way more than any other part of it. And uh, once, I, once I finished grad school, I decided like, right, I want to see how much I can lift now. Um, I'm pretty good at it, despite having exceptionally long arms. I've 
I'm a condor, basically. Uh, <laughs> I am the worst built person for powerlifting, by the way, but I still loved it. Um, and yeah, I just got into it and loved seeing what my body could do and how far I could push myself. Uh, but kind of early on into that, sadly, so this was a little over seven years ago now, before I had really good form or somebody to coach me on it, I was bench pressing. And I had the bar stuck at like six inches off my chest and I just couldn't get it past that sticking point. And so I arched my back a little extra and I felt a pop. Oh no! And um, I have a pretty high pain tolerance. Uh, I also wake up early under anesthesia and metabolize pain medication very quickly. So I'm one of those weird folks. And because of that, I have a high pain tolerance. And I'm like, it popped, it's a muscle thing. Give it a couple of weeks, it'll be fine. And it basically turned into six and now going on seven years of constant chronic back pain. And I would go to the doctor and I would be like, my back hurts. And they're like, well, of course your back hurts. You're a power lifter. And I would also say it kind of in this tone of voice. I'm not screaming or crying in pain. And I would keep bringing it up. And, you know, I didn't want muscle relaxers because I want to be able to function. And I would never once ask for pain medication. At one point, I had one doctor give me a single pan or single uh, view x-ray in the AP view, which is basically useless for the spine, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, and so yeah, when the pandemic hit and all the gyms shut down and I don't have a home gym, I'm like, it's going to heal. It is my time. I have forced time off from powerlifting. And it got worse. Uh, the back pain got substantially worse. And so uh, this was close to when I had moved to Notre Dame, obviously, and I had a new doctor here. I prepared for two weeks, Tim, this speech to give my doctor because I had been <laughs> ignored by doctors for so long about this pain. Uh, and so, um, you know, he's also my allergist. And so we built up a good relationship because I saw him every week for, for six months uh, and then every month after that. Uh, so I let this out and he's like, what had been done? And I told him, I told him about the AP view x-ray. And he's like, yeah, that's useless. I'm like, oh yeah, I know. And so we got a five panel uh, x-ray of my back and I have a bilateral pars articularis fracture of my L5, which is still broken, never healed. I've got um, anterior listesis of L5 now coming off yeah. of S1. It's sliding forward. Yeah, yeah, extensive arthritis throughout my lumbar vertebra, uh, vertebra especially for a 38 year old. Uh, and my L4, L5 disc is looking kind of junky. Uh, and I was basically told you kind of can never lift again. You never squat over 50 pounds. You should never, ever deadlift again. And that turned into a year of some pretty dark depression because it turned out I did all of my heaviest lifting on a broken back. <laughs> I pick up 450 pounds and walk 20 yards with it. No big deal, broken back. Um, and so I am now a former power lifter. And this is, you know, my plea to all physicians, listen to your patients when they bring up pain because this could have been fixed six years ago, seven years ago, and not lead to a chronic back issue I'm going to have for the rest of my life. Right. And this is the personalized medicine mm -hmm. lesson that we need to learn. And that's why we have pain scales. And that's why we in the world of epidemiology have the, the sliding pain scale. So the person can tell us that and it, pain is very individual. It's individual within my own family. Yeah. So yeah, I hear you. And it leads me to an old dad slash doctor joke. Hey, doc, it hurts when I do this. Don't do that. <laughs> and, and so my last question is you are also a fellow podcaster. I believe it's called The Sausage of Science. Two questions. How did you come up with that name? And number two, where can folks find it? 
Yeah, so uh, technically our first ever guest is the one who came up with that name because he was describing, you know, all these different things that go into the work that we do and how some of it never makes it to publication. And there are all these different details, all these different ingredients. Like a sausage isn't just one ingredient right. ever. It's this collection of amazing ingredients that give you awesome flavor and texture once you finally cook it. And so he had described his work as, you know, when we talk about this sausage that is science, we're like, that's our title. Um, but interestingly, the origin of the podcast seems very similar to the origin of your podcast in that we are affiliated with the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology. And uh, it's my colleague and co-host, Dr. Chris Lynn, who's at U uh, University of Alabama. We're like, we're good friends. And we like talking to people and learning about the cool shit that they're, they're, that they're doing. Uh, let's start a podcast that will then promote the journal and promote the association. We don't get paid like this is, you know, zero dollar budget kind of thing. And this is now our sixth season, which we kind of can't believe that we've been going for that long. No, that's great. Yeah. Now, where can folks get that podcast? Um, you can literally search The Sausage of Science on any of your podcast apps or things that you use to find podcasts. You can also search the Human Biology Association and there's a tab for the podcast there. Fantastic. This has been amazing. And I am definitely going to have Kate reach out to you when your book comes out, or please email us because I would love to have you come on and just spend time talking Absolutely. about that. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tim. That's today's episode of the Special Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Kara Akabach, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. 